0: the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference. I'm Helen McDonald, I'm the clinical editor who looks after the BMJ's Too Much Medicine campaign. In this podcast, I'm going to talk to a variety of people who attended or spoke at the conference, and I've tried to include something for everyone. We have a debate on how and who should define disease. We talk to doctors about how to deprescribe medication. We learn about dementia and the aging brain, and we hear how researchers are advancing the agenda in research into too much medicine, overdiagnosis, and strategies to prevent it. This morning, we heard a talk from Carol Brain, Director of the Cambridge Institute for Public Health. She told us about how the diagnosis of dementia has changed and what differentiates it from usual ageing. And tell us a bit about what dementia is, because I think right near the beginning of your talk, you were talking about how the, the actual definition of what we mean by dementia has changed. Um, Expand on that a bit.
1: So, well, the fundamental definition of dementia hasn't really changed um, because it's a clinical syndrome Mm -hmm. uh, that affects our thinking. And then you meet the the diagnostic threshold for dementia syndrome when you're you're losing the ability to function day to day. So do do the things that you need to do to live Having a clinical syndrome like that um, defined by ability to function in our society independently uh, in your environment, it means that it's also dependent on the environment that you live
0: in. That so was it, really fascinating to me, this idea that even the definition of dementia is cultural. Yes.
1: Yeah, and it's not really that that much, it's not explored in huge detail across the globe. What's happened is that the Western framing of dementia has largely been adopted by lower and middle income countries. Now, there's there's a lot, a lot that, that about that that's very good because clearly, in many societies, um, dementia syndrome is seen as hugely stigmatised, and people are very uh, can be very neglected and very and poorly treated. Um, but that said, there is also um, a variation in the socio cultural interpretation of the dementia syndrome which means that in some societies, people can become demented and be supported by their environments without necessarily needing a diagnosis. And of course, that that can also happen in our own society in the UK. And so even something like measuring the ability to function day to day within the European setting or within the UK setting will have changed over time because, um, well, it's called instrumental daily activities of daily living really, but um, uh, things like the washing machine and the video and our, the ways that we live our lives have changed so that our ability to function independently in future is more likely to be associated with our ability to continue to operate it, uh, um, ele- uh, gadgets. gadgets yes the internet <laughs> and uh, whatever machinery intelligent machinery we have immersed and what about in our expectations. Homes.
0: do people just expect more of themselves? Do, do you think there was a sense, I don't know if you'd rewound a generation or two, that, that someone at the age of 60 or 70 would have culturally believed that they... Were elderly yeah. that they were at the end of their life, yeah. and that's yeah. not. Re- I don't see people of, of yeah. that generation feeling that way now. I much? think there's an,
1: there are enormous differences across um, element, uh, different sections of our society, so, uh, and and that is uh, very much I think associated with the expectations of health of different group groupings within society, and clearly that does that, that does relate to culture, and cultural experience of health. Uh, but it also relates to um, dis- social disadvantage and what one might have called sort of class in the past. So um, it is the case that I think there are groups in society who are benefiting from a lot of the knowledge that we have in about dementia prevention and are really working incredibly hard in their midlife and later, sort of early later life, to, as it were, preserve their brain function, <laughs> and I'm sure lots of doctors are amongst those. Um, but the problem with this almost personalised approach, which is that it's everybody's responsibility to look after their own brains, it means that there are many sections of society that just can't, that that aren't geared up Mm. to doing that. And so for somebody who's been a lifelong smoker, who's had a pretty, who's been in and out of work uh, throughout their lives, maybe drinks heavily and so on, the the message about uh, mid, about prevention and midlife um, risk reduction and so on will be very hard to, to 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 work on. So there there are huge differences across society, and we really need uh, approaches that um, that that address that. And if we don't address those now, then we will see great. I, I think we will see greater inequalities in the, the occurrence of dementia occur. Um, emerging over time we found them in our latest study whereas we we hadn't actually found them in our first study mm. that we that there's a social deprivation effect in the risk for dementia in particular areas uh, areas so we had we had um, significant variation across our sites which was accounted for by social deprivation mm. so i think there's we really need to work on on that angle and, and it is it just shows how sort of changeable so it's it's different now cross-sectionally and it will vary over time as well
0: and in terms of separating people out um, at the beginning of your career you were dealing I suppose with one definition of of what dementia was and that expanded a bit talk us a bit yeah. through that a bit because that sort of leads on to the this element of overdiagnosis, doesn't yeah. it
1: so the dementia syndrome ha- has this uh, decline in mental function Associated with, um, once it gets severe enough to interfere with day to day life. Um, what's happened over time is that to make that diagnosis, you have to measure lots of things, and clearly there are many underlying factors that are thought to contribute to the dementia syndrome. So it could be, might be. Uh, uh, you know, heavy alcohol abuse uh, might be strokes, might be um, clinically diagnosed Alzheimer's disease type pathologies, which is uh, kind of the, the biggest group, um, usually assumed to be the biggest group. Biggest group. So, so in our studies, we have to measure all those different things which might contribute to brain aging and brain and and uh, the risk of dementia. And what we um, then do, if you like, is then start to see measuring those things possibly as a surrogate for the diagnosis. Mm. So as attention has um, been focused on dementia, methods to measure uh, measure things like genetics and genomics and proteomics and... Uh, those are the most recent and now they're very um, novel imaging such as tau and beta-amyloid in the brain, but it might be something um, a bit more prosaic like bl- blood pressure or whatever. But all of those things um, can now be measured and put together and some of those things are being suggested to be a profile of pre-dementia, so pre-clinical dementia. Mm the attention because we've not had much success with treatments in dementia when people have developed dementia this is why the effort has shifted upstream Mm. to these preclinical preclinical which is where there's no cognitive symptoms or mild cognitive impairment so those states but the problem is that those are not there's not been sufficient natural history studies using those novel techniques to see how Good, they are at predicting whether somebody goes on to, to dementia. So there's an assumption mm. that if you have them, you will go on to dementia. Uh, certainly, I'm, I I think that's the way that the, a patient might perceive it. Mm. Um, but in fact, the reality, the evidence base suggests that it's much more uncertain than that. You, know,
0: you were talking in your in your um, keynote about how in some ways this becomes a perfect storm because it's not just you as the doctor and someone else as the patient having a conversation about some symptoms you've got, you've got charities, you've got pharmaceutical companies, you've got um, pressure groups, a whole, a whole load yes. of other people yes. who've come to have a stake in yes. and an interest in some way. in so and many people
1: would argue you know quite quite rightly that that's been very important in destigmatizing dementia and also raising awareness so that people with real need can uh, can be identified to services and receive support but along with that has come this huge uh, effort for early detection and it, it it's it's based on a model uh, a a model of dementia, which is, I think, driven by an understanding of dementia in younger people, which is mm. just much more clear cut. And in the older population, it's, it's much more sort of fused with different types of dementia, all the different types of dementia, different pathologies within an individual. And also, a very major uh, factor is that some of, some dementia is associated with end of life as mm. well. So, there are elements that can be prevented. Elements that may be treatable but there's also possibly an element that can't be prevented. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: And you were talking a bit about the the kind of burden of the disease and two things struck me as interesting. One is about um, the age makeup of people that have dementia and the other um, was about how the absolute numbers of people with dementia have altered over time because you might expect that they should have increased as we've got increasingly elderly as a as a population talk us through those um those figures
1: yeah so using our population based studies um we looked at what the age distribution of people with dementia in the population is most people with dementia will be over 80 by far the majority so it's a minority who are in the younger age groups and when you bring in the older groups, then you've got all the comorbidities and all the frailty and all the complexity that comes with older age. Mm. So from our brain studies, we know that uh, the vascular pathology plays a very Big role, an equal role, in fact, in our studies, and age uh, and Alzheimer type pathology, all all um, important, but not no one is sort of dominant. Not one of those is dominant. So we knew that the risk factors for um, dementia were changing in the population. So the the risk factors that we understand from observational studies and cohort studies have changed in our populations quite dramatically over the last decades. That includes possible protective factors as well such as education so education's changed vascular factors have changed the risk factors for
0: vascular um, diseases have changed or disorders so have they've changed. changed you mean to say that it, because the population as a whole is more educated that in some way is a protective factor well um,
1: certainly from the from the cohort studies um, pretty consistently education and intellectual engagement is shown yeah. as to be a protective factor yeah. for dementia. So those things have changed in whole populations. Yes. So we um, hypothesised that we sh- that we might see a change, or s- we, we might see a change or stability in the prevalence and incidence of dementia across generations. And um, the reason why I say it could could have stayed the same is because, of course, there can be things like um, diabetes and mm-hmm. so on. So there are there are risk factors that have gone up mm-hmm. and risk factors that have mm-hmm. gone down. So uh, we repeated the, the studies that we had done in the early 90s um, in, sort of in the recent past uh, with new generations of people in the same localities and what we showed was that the uh, prevalence uh, has dropped by 20% age for age, mm-hmm. or over 20%, and uh, the incidence has also dropped. And for prevalence, it, that drop is sufficient to mitigate the rising age of the population. Mm. So the estimated numbers of people with dementia using the same diagnostic methods across time showed that it was stable, relatively stable. Mm. However, of course, it will go up unless we ha- increase, as, we, as the population mm. ages even further, unless we improve our health even further. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, it's unknown what will happen in the future.
0: In the UK, GPs are asked to look for patients who might have undiagnosed dementia and the numbers to support that have been taken from your research. Can you tell us how your research should be used and with what do you caution?
1: So our data can be used for national policy making because it's the most robust, you know it's not perfect, uh, but it's uh, the most robust data that exists for the UK population. I should mention here that we don't have ethnic minorities represented in these studies and that that requires uh, that definitely requires specific work but um, they've also been used used to drill down to give smaller population levels um, the estimation of how many people with dementia they might expect in their areas. Now that, statistically, that doesn't really work Mm. because our estimates have some uncertainty um, on a large population that we've seen. And if you apply them to a local population they they will have bigger Mm. um, uncertainty around them. So that I would urge great caution in the use of an absolute number at a small local level. I think once you get up to maybe um, a, a larger population, a district or so on, then it should become a little bit more, you should be able to be seeing things roughly within the um, the, es- the point estimate and, and the confidence intervals of uh, what we would But essentially it would be a say.
0: bad idea to say to any single specific clinical doctor, we would expect based on the number of people you've got, X number of people should have dementia. Yeah. go and find them.
1: Yes, it, well, it seems curious. We've we've never done that for mm. things like breast cancer, or colon yeah. cancer, or cervical cancer. We've never said you will find this number of people in your area. What we've done is said, uh, keep you know, encourage. Uh, we've had the evidence base to um, justify screening, mm. which we don't for dementia, um, and we've said for those people who you make a diagnosis of dementia. Yeah. Uh, uh, those people who are eligible for screening, we want you to get 80% of them mm. um, or whatever it is. Mm. So, it's, so it is curious. It's, I think it's the only condition for which there has been that kind of approach. Mm.
0: Today we had a panel session discussing de-prescribing, and I've managed to rope in two guests to discuss the discussion who can hopefully give us some practical ideas on how we can translate what we heard into practice. I've got James McCormack from Canada and Richard Lehman from the UK. James and Richard, can you introduce yourselves?
3: Yeah, my name is James McCormack and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Hi,
4: I'm Richard Lehman. And I'm a retired GP uh, and some of you may know that I do a blog for the BMJ. I also work part-time for the Cochrane UK collaboration
0: well very esteemed guests I'm just a humble normal locum GP (laughs) and editor so um one really powerful thing that struck me right at the start of this session was that David one of the speakers said that deprescribing was cost effective cost saving it changed people's lives maybe it saved lives and he would be a very rich man if this was a new idea or there was lots of money in it so how good are we at deprescribing, and when did, we, when, did we sort of, when did it become accepted in this way? In your esteemed opinions, having charted a medical career for longer than I have, when, when's, when have people started to talk about it? Well, I,
3: I think it's been around for a long time, and, and a, a great quote that I once heard about uh, using medications was, for some strange reason in our society, starting a drug is like the bliss of marriage, and stopping it is like the agony of divorce. And if you think about it, it should be the exact opposite. We should be exceedingly nervous about starting medications and start with just very little doses. But stopping them, we should just almost start abandon. And I'm not saying it without some level of caution, but you know i think we need to it should be as uh, as a part of our lexicon of stopping drugs as it is of starting but unfortunately it isn't because there seems to be well, and you guys can speak of this when you're going to stop a medication don't you get nervous right mm. there's and you and and so you you sort of need that confidence and, and one of the best ways is with experience of, of what happens almost it almost it never goes almost never goes south and almost every patient will say they feel better I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing as healthcare providers? Or maybe not. <laughs> right. He says facetiously. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, but all the all of the incentives uh, to us, including politeness to colleagues, uh, the the pressures from the guideline industry, who in turn are pressured by the pharmaceutical industry, they all work in the direction of, of geological prescribing. You you never stop anything, you just accumulate another level and uh, i think this has been going on really without control for over a decade and and in in the uk i rather blame the quality and outcomes framework system where you plonk a label on a patient and then give them stuff and you get extra points and points mean prizes and practices have to exist financially in constrained systems Uh, if we were looking at the system as a whole Uh, incentivizing people to do less would make an enormous amount of sense, both for individuals and for the system. But it's only just beginning to go in the opposite direction. And this week there are two really hopeful developments. Um, One is that NICE so
0: that's the National Institute of Health and Chemical Excellence in the UK. Yeah.
4: Care and Health Excellence or something, um, it, which is UK, of course, but widely respected throughout the world, um, probably correctly, um, is uh, has put out uh, a whole uh, raft of measures which are supposed to be in, uh, meant to promote shared decision-making with patients. It's not going to stop us being decision makers in our own right but at least our decisions will be aligned with those we're supposed to serve so that's one thing the other thing that NICE has done is to produce a new guideline on multi-morbidity I'm told by those who had some part in I've shaping it, it. You have it's probably vague and preachy, but um, <laughs> let's let's hope that it's it's a sign of a culture change because we badly need that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, th- I think there is some some something to gain from reading it, and in fact, the the authors of the nice um, guidance have done a summary article for the BMJ, which you should be able to see also up online today, which right. is kind of really distilling it down just into a thousand words or so. Um, and I mean, it's an incredibly tall order isn't it to write even a 200 page document on multi <laughs> let alone try and boil it down to a, a sort of one-size-fits-all approach but I, I think that some of the suggestions within there although I think it's fair to say that a lot of them are common sense do kind of drive um drive you to look at the patient more holistically which kind of overlaps a little bit with the thing that David was also talking about in this in his session which was about this um turf war between specialists and, and, and generalists and how you should view the information that come from, comes from specialists. And one thing that really came through to me through that NICE guidance is that you need one person that's coordinating this, that you might take advice from other people. You might take a very specialist person's advice on what would be best for this person's heart or lungs, but that really, if you are gonna do an approach to multi you can't ever consider one of, one of those things
3: yeah. Oh no. And there's no doubt. And, and you know, a GP is placed exactly where they're supposed to be placed to do this. And what we, uh, what we've, what I spent a lot of my career is trying to provide information to them to help them have the confidence to be able to do that. Because you're right. It's hard to go against the specialists. It, and, and, and I and I don't think and we're all trying to do a good thing. It's very rare to have a specialist, you know, say I should be doing this, even though I know it's harmful. We're all trying to do the right thing, and I think we're going to talk about this later in in the afternoon about guidelines. Mm-hmm. And guidelines, really, for chronic disease management, whether it be for uh, the risk factor of type 2 diabetes or blood pressure or or the use of statins, they they, if you follow them, you must. You're going to have lots of people on medications, and and I think if you empower family docs to know how big. Or in quotation marks, little the potential benefit is, you should you wouldn't be worried about stopping medications. I mean, you know we're having massive debates it's about. It's
0: a tricky thing, isn't it? Because for shared decision making, you've got to have the information there, and this it sometimes sometimes feels to me that people are hiding a little bit behind the topic and saying, well, if you share this information with patients, then they can make a choice for themselves. But how easy is it for you to put your fingers on as the GP? the absolute harm and benefits in somebody a bit like this what's uncertain where where do you go well first of all
3: we have to realize that we can only ballpark all this stuff yeah. because Uh, You know, as you know, one of the main risk tools that we use is from Framingham, and I bet you never see patients from Framingham. No, I don't. So, so it may not. You know, how does it even apply to that? So, these are all ballpark numbers, but there are enough tools and guidance and and things that uh, I I know, uh, Richard, we talked about creating and, and have been created to help you do that. And I don't know how really difficult it is because. Uh, as an example with statins. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me very simple. It, 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 for primary prevention, at best, one to two percent benefit over five years in, in a reduction in their chance of having a heart attack. If it's secondary prevention, it's about five or six percent. If a patient wants that, that's great. And if a patient doesn't want that, that's great. And you'll notice that t- the tone of my voice on that's great was identical for whether they said they wanted to take it or not.
0: And that's another interesting point that they brought up, wasn't it? That you have this idea that you sit there as an impartial person, as a doctor, or you try to impart advice um, or information impartially, but the person sitting in front of you, they have their own values and preferences, but they've also, also may have heard strong messages and have, have, I think the word that David used in the talk was to say that they'd received a lot of marketing information mm-hmm. from from charity campaigns, from um, industry, from from other places. So how do you, how can you have that conversation? Um, I suppose sort of acknowledge the biases that the patient may come with themselves.
3: Yeah. Well, I don't know about what you guys do, but I'm I, all you can do is 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 be honest with what we know about the information. And one of the things we is to. To say, yeah, those messages are out there, and you know, treating blood pressure does reduce the risk of stroke. Uh, it does reduce the risk of heart attacks. Taking a statin, probably for some people, will reduce the chance of heart disease. But the issue is not is not does it work. The issue is how big of an effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we've often talked to uh, uh, many many family doctors, and we ask them, though, well, when would you treat your blood? What number would you treat your blood pressure? And often it's very, very different from the guidelines. Probably because they've seen the harm associated with giving those medications. But when you ask them why, you know, why did they say I would treat my blood pressure at 160? And and here, this is literally the, what you hear. Well, 180 just sounds very high. <laughs> 140 is right at the threshold of the guideline. Uh, but I, you know, I'm not going to take it at that, and, and I, I'm a Canadian, and so when, uh, we, you know, we all meet in the middle. So we say 160.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And then you ask them, well, why? What, do you know what your risk of a heart attack or stroke is? No. Uh, so why 160? And, and there is no answer. It's just because. And, and that's the problem with these artificial or arbitrary thresholds of, of numbers to treat when we really should be treating based on we think this is your risk roughly. We think you can get it down to this would you like that? And I think that's a simple conversation, but it's not something that that goes on all the time. Sure, and if it did go on all the time, just
4: imagine uh, what GPs would be doing. I mean, I think these these decisions about long-term preventive treatment are in a a separate category of their own. Let's go back to what we were hearing this morning, uh, which is about old people, I think most of them were in their 90s, being given preventive medications in order for them to live uh, theoretical another three months, if you took them off the medications, they actually lived happier lives for another three years, and it, you know it's it's because that does not get into the literature, that we have this incredibly skewed system of, of polypharmacy for the elderly. There has been a culture change. You can see, you can actually say these things now. And who knows, you know, the culture change may go so far that gerontologists or geriatricians and GPs might be seen as co-equals with specialists who only have to deal with one field, because actually, intellectually, it's far more difficult to do the dance when you're doing it from one, one aspect of a person to another and trying to incorporate a whole team approach to their care. And I think, um, you know, this is, this is a wonderfully good development. I don't feel optimistic about a lot of things at my age of 66, but I do feel that medicine is finally turning back in the right direction. Uh, and that the geriatricians who've always boasted the geriatrician's scalpel you know that term do you? My scalpel is to cut the drug sheet in (laughs) half (laughs) okay (laughs) I mean that's finally becoming cool for people
3: Mm -hmm. and I was going to say one of the things if if people are worried about just out and out stopping medications that's what they it, it's usually the if we just stop it you know everything will go to hell in a handbasket well the the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that when a, a new drug comes on the market the doses that are initially recommended are probably for most medical conditions four to eight fold more than they need to be and it's really easy to show why you could easily take and especially if they if if a person is elderly uh, you know I, you, I don't think you even need to bother measuring their you know their renal function or liver function i just go it's probably way less than what it was, and, th- and for that reason alone, you could just say, instead of giving you the doses that we see give everybody else, we'll just give you a half or a quarter of the dose. And if we can do that, a, 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 then you don't have to necessarily stop the medication, but almost all of the medications in the elderly, if you just cut them in half or a quarter, mm-hmm. you'd probably have much less of the morbidity associated with it, and you may get then su- the benefit that they maybe sh- could have gotten from, uh, you know, from some of these medications are very, very useful. And so you can maintain the benefit, but maybe get rid of uh, some of the you know, the, the adverse events because they're just they're not clearing it. Um, there were some
0: interesting other phrases that they used. Yeah. Um, I suppose, suppose thinking of like how, how you bring up these topics and how you go on to discuss it. And I quite liked um, the description, I suppose, of everything being a trial, because you would say to somebody, we'll try you on this medication mm. and see what happens. And if it doesn't help mm. them, we'll stop it. But equally, if someone's been on something for a long, long, long time, and, and maybe is feeling anxious about stopping it, that in a way you can use the same language and say, this may, you know, the balance of, of harm and benefit here may be the other way around, so why don't we try stopping it and see how you feel? Yeah. I, I think, to me, that was quite a useful um, turn of well, phrase. Or that just
3: try, try cutting it in half. Yeah, because if you cut it in half, it's yeah. you still got it. Yeah, and and then and then and then because al- almost without exception, when you cut medications in half, the if I, I could, you can't see this with just audio, but with the dose response curve, God forbid we talk about dose response curves ever again, but the dose response curves when you look at them, they're very, uh, you get almost all the benefit for blood pressure lowering from the lowest dose that's available in this in our we call it the cps i don't what is it whatever it's called the pdr the, BNF, the yeah good. the bnf so you get almost all of the benefit from the very very lowest dose and you when you when you double the dose you never get double the effect of any medication in the history of medications wow. you you get a you get an incremental increase so that's mm-hmm. why it's so important to just to, to use very low doses and then you know, pile on that with a person who's 90 years of age who is, you know, the drug stay with them like carbon-14. I think you're
0: far too knowledgeable about this, James. Did you actually learn anything from getting to this talk? Well,
3: I, no, <laughs> but, it, but it's—and it, you can see that's the—you know, this is a passion of, of, of mine and how to, to do this because the evidence is overwhelmingly clear mm. about how to do these things. There's not, there's not overwhelming studies, but the concepts are very simple. Uh, and, and I think GPs are in a perfect position to, to, to do that.
4: We are. But uh, <laughs> we're also in, a, in an incredibly imperfect world mm-hmm. where we're just rushed to do the Absolutely. things that, that we have to prioritize within 10 minutes. And that's where these discussions get really difficult. So let's have some ideas as we develop about how those dialogues should, should take place still within the 12
3: hours a day that GPs work at, at the moment. Right. Okay. Oh no, no, I, to- yeah. and I totally appreciate that, that this is not, I'm not saying it, that what I'm saying sounds easy, yeah, but yeah. It, it, there's a lot of time that, that this sort of conversation takes. W- one thing I would suggest, though, is uh, you pointed this right out at the very beginning, is the the uh, if we're in an environment that, 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 that prizes getting everybody to target blood pressures and target glucoses and target everything, humans will go get those targets wouldn't it wouldn't it would it not be brilliant to have a target that the t- of we have done shared decision making with this patient and check a box
4: well, all boxes are bad,
3: uh, in my view. Uh, it, was me- it was more of a metaphorical uh, box that I was talking you know, about. Yeah, but
4: you know, they 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 don't do metaphors in in NHS no, they- England. <laughs> they do tick boxes, you yeah. know. And to make this into a tick bo- tick box box exercise is to induce immediate antibodies in large quantities from the profession as a whole because they don't know where it fits in. If we were in a situation where the government was full of goodwill towards doctors and was genuinely um, concerned to build up primary care and get the drug bill down and do its best for patients, we'd all be working, you know, 16 hours a day instead of 12 because that's the motivation, you're valued, you're doing something that's, that's forward-looking. Let's hope it happens because otherwise we, we can't do this stuff.
0: One of the highlight sessions from the conference was a debate on disease definition. Who should define disease and how? The bread and butter of overdiagnosis, and we managed to grab two of the participants to give us an idea of how disease expansion could be improved. Paul Glasiew is Professor of Evidence-based medicine at Bond University, and Lara Golligley is editor of the WHO Bulletin. For our listeners, can you sum up Paul what you think in a nutshell in a couple of sentences the problem is that we talked about right at the start of the debate.
5: The problem that we have is a growing number of people who are being diagnosed with conditions where it may be unimportant to them or they may be completely well, that's putting a strain on both them personally and on the healthcare system. And the, why that's occurring seems to be because the panels themselves have Um, various types of conflict that mean that they want to increase the number of people diagnosed with diabetes or polycystic ovary or ADHD or whatever the condition is and so those conditions continually have the boundaries moved outwards they rarely move inwards and we need to do something about that that engages a wider community than just the specialist whose special area of interest that is.
0: And you talked about the fact that the the interests that people might have are not just the traditional ones that you might think of. They've taken a lot of money from industry or, or something like that. You, that I mean, financial interest is one element, but you talked about two other important elements in, in the debate today. Do you want to mention those briefly?
5: Well, the other conflicts are, um, as Barry Kramer was pointing out from the NIH consensus um, panels, one is the intellectual conflict that you have a fixed position about this because you've been researching it. But the other, and I think the most important one, is this: is if you're trying to define who are the patients that you see every day. You're a diabetologist, for example, and your mainstay of income is seeing patients with diabetes. Then you don't want that shrunk. You at least want it to maintain the same, maybe even expand. And so, you, so there's there's a natural human tendency not to want that territory to shrink, and if anything, to want it to expand.
0: And I guess you see the worst cases as well, compared to the generalists or um, community managed patients you're also seeing a more severe disease spectrum and perhaps your that's right. bias is therefore to want to intervene and to want to help more people yeah. um, because you don't see people living as well with the diseases. As, that's as true, others. a
5: good example of that would be nephrologists who yeah. see the patients with end-stage renal yeah. disease on dialysis or getting their transplants and for them that's what they want to stop but to do that they're now saying well one in three people are at risk of chronic kidney disease when there's a much, much, much tinier fraction of people who end up on dialysis or transplants. So the number needed to treat in order to get down to those um, few people is enormous. Yeah,
0: sure. And Lara, you've been talking from a slightly different perspective, and one of the things you were talking about in terms of the panels and how these decisions are made is the importance of having a chair that comes from a, a neutral position. Can you say a bit more about how the role that a chair has in these kind of panels?
2: Yeah, well the role of the chair is to mitigate the tendencies of the guideline panel to be optimistic about the result of their recommendations. So if they recommend that for instance everyone should have, every woman should have daily iron because in some circumstances you can't actually provide access to diagnostics for anemia. So you just give daily iron to every woman. They are they are unquestionably optimistic that their recommendation will result in more harm than good. And I think the chair's role really is to always question those assumptions, to understand what they are. So the chair needs to know enough about the topic at hand, enough about the clinical care and treatment, if, it, if it's a clinical condition that's being tackled. But. Um, bold enough to really challenge all the unspoken assumptions of the panel that bl- lead them to make very sweeping recommendations you on occasion a
0: bit? as well Paul did not you having a kind of a skeptic or you were quite taken with an idea from the audience of having a kind of skeptic in the ro- room and well, you were that, thinking that, was, that as part of the role of the chair but
5: maybe maybe it was lara's suggestion i think, you you an suggestion. I think and it's they may be separate roles you may have a skeptic a person who says but you know what, what, please give me the evidence for that or that sounds what are the harms etc the chair I would probably see as being someone who was more neutral, mm-hmm. who didn't have a fixed position, who was able to say, no, I hear, we have to hear both sides of this. We have to understand the whole spectrum and all the things. And Gordon Guyatt's suggestion for this has been to have a methodologist who doesn't see that group of patients as the chair. I'm not sure that that's, that's absolutely correct for all circumstances, but it's actually a reasonable thing to consider that you want a pretty either an unconflicted chair or a pretty unconflicted chair who has methodological and also facilitative expertise Mm -hmm. because they need to be able to manage a very difficult process.
0: And there was another idea floating around from the crowd about expanding the role of diagnostics almost as a specialty within itself that you could have um, methodologists who aren't just going to look at the evidence but also might be trained or or briefed in other aspects of um, the implications of expanding a disease like the ethics or the philosophy or Mm. um, other elements. What what were your thoughts on those suggestions? I think the
2: suggestion was for an entire field of diagnostic science um, Mm. because it's true we're rolling out more and more diagnostic tests. I mean the latest attempt is to actually have a diagnostic fever panel so that in low- and middle-income countries you can take a spot of blood and run it against 15 pathogens at a time. If that were to work, yes, potentially you could then differentiate things that actually needed antibiotics from those that didn't um, or needed an antiparasitic from things that didn't. Perhaps you'd get more rational treatment, but it's not at all certain. I mean it's not certainly what we've seen with other rapid diagnostic tests in those kind of settings so so w- again the the enthusiasm for technology the 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 assumption that this is the the price of progress that we pay for a little bit of unser- you know we pay a little bit of uncertainty potentially some short term harms but on the whole science advances and this is how medical care advances you know I think that those are the si- sort of assumptions that need to be
0: critically examined that and that's really what interesting the- I've never thought of overdiagnosis being a kind of side effect of progress before I hadn't heard that really talked about is that something that <laughs> it is for us the
2: diagnostic mm-hmm. tests don't work.
5: Mm. in and a certainly, lot of circumstances. Certainly a consequence of technological process. So if you use a new technology for diagnosing a condition, you intrinsically change the definition because you'll almost never have an identical match. Usually the technology is um, increases the numbers. So a classic example of it is when we move from so-called VQ scans for detecting pulmonary embolism, mm. um, To the spiral CT scan, Mm. much more sensitive technology, as Mm. Lara's saying, Mm. Um, but detects things that probably we don't want to detect because they're Mm. so small and trivial and don't actually kill anybody, and you've got more harm from anticoagulating. The more
0: recognised tests, like um, the test for diabetes, the difference in populations that you pick up if you use an HbA1c definition of diabetes versus a a fast or a um, a random sample. Did anything crop up in the debate that took you by surprise? Or any ideas that interested you that you wanted to think about more?
5: Well, I liked Martin Whiteley's, um, he made the comment about ADHD and saying that the experts should just present to a neutral group. And it makes me think there are three possible roles that I think we actually implicitly discussed today. One is where the experts are actually part and parcel of the panel and they vote and they've just got the same role. The other is where the experts can sit and engage with the panel. They're part of it, but they don't get to vote or make mm-hmm. the fi- any final recommendations. And the final one is his suggestion, which I'm rather taken with, of, of just getting the experts to present to the group. It's almost like a uh, law court evidence or something jury. like that. Yeah. Evidence yeah. jury, it's yeah. called. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. being that with community juries, for example, making screening decisions... Um, and I'm, I'm sort of taken by it, but I still worry that they'll miss out on part of the dialogue. But I, li- I don't like them being a sort of voting, influential member of the, of the committee. But I think mm. their voice has to be heard as well. I think that's the dilemma, is getting the expertise without getting that, as David Klemperer says, the bias or the conflicts.
0: Mm. And are there any new ideas that
5: came
2: well, to you? I listening?
0: just want to go back to this person who
2: said something about natural history. I think the clinical community that's currently practising would be really challenged to be able to describe the natural history of almost any disease that they currently see. Mm. Because
0: the natural so history... The, idea, the person who mentioned that we should think of these diagnoses labels almost being like screening tests, applying those kind of criteria for yes. understanding
2: and that somehow we'd be able to compare this to the natural history of disease mm. but um, my unexamined <laughs> um, conclusion on that is that that you know the natural history of disease is for most of the diseases that these clinicians currently see is unknown to them they've never seen it because it's al- it's always been treated and as each yeah, generation yes. of clinicians come out of m- medicine medical training the natural, what they consider the natural history, their assumptions about a disease, how it will act if it do- isn't being treated, change because they've never seen uh, pulmonary embolism you know, diagnosed with a stethoscope, they've never seen a breech birth delivered vaginally, they've never seen, you know, they, they we don't actually have good natural histories of diseases anymore.
0: A natural history. That's, That's right, Be- and
2: because they're so affected by context, what's the natural history of obesity? you know, without anyone treating underlying diabetes, heart at- hypertension, congestive heart failure, uh, exercise intolerance, skin rashes, what what happens to the obese person? It's highly context-dependent.
0: And what are you going to take away? What What are you going to do with all this debate that you've been listening to? Um, what would you hope to be able to say by the next conference?
5: Well, Laura and I have actually been working on trying to set up these rules that we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's one. But I think we're just beginning on that to actually have um, a reasonable, at least a checklist of what things you should look at. And I think getting that and doing further work on it, but getting international agreement from the the, the vast array of groups who make decisions about um, disease definitions at the moment is really important. But I think this, this panel constitution thing and how you best use expertise but avoid the bias and conflicts from it, It's so interesting that we
0: don't have that because we've got guidance for so many other things on how to do things or how to report things and it seems like this area doesn't Mm. have that.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, I can speak from personal experience. To me, it was a sort of hidden thing. I hadn't recognised personally how big this problem of shifts in diagnostic definitions are and I think for most people... You know, you change the definition of diabetes, and most people just think, oh, yes, it's shifted. You know, this is what it is now, and that, that's the truth. Whatever we've, we've shifted to without recognising that actually all well, that changes all our evidence. All the evidence we used to have was about a different definition of diabetes. All the experience we used to have is about a different definition. It's now something else that we don't know as well.
0: Tim Wilt is a Professor of Medicine at Minneapolis VA Centre for Chronic Diseases Outcomes Research. You're running the conference's research day. Overdiagnosis compared to some other medical um, fields is relatively young, so are we at the point of just describing the problem or where, where are we on that kind of journey?
6: Well, I think we've moved it a little bit forward, but I agree with you that it's a young field and that in the first couple of years of the o- perennial Overdiagnosis Conference, it really was ar- around the uh, is overdiagnosis true, what is it, uh, and how prevalent is it. I believe we're starting to move beyond that right now and research has a real opportunity to bring that forward into clinical implementation. Um, That's really in large part what the research day is about is uh, I think we've pretty much defined that it exists. Uh, We know that there can be problems with it. Now what can we do to uh, reduce the harms of our diagnosis while ensuring that we're providing the right care for the right patients at the right time. we think that some research initiatives that look at um, strategies for de-implementation of healthcare, care, uh, the role of shared decision making and citizen juries in getting patient values into uh, clinical decisions, uh, the role of health policy and economics in appropriately influencing high-value care and reducing low-value care, which includes reducing overdiagnosis, um, and ensuring that uh, we understand what uh, redefinitions of disease, how that impacts not only uh, overdiagnosis, but how that affects healthcare for individuals, and then to play a role in perhaps uh, participating on uh, society groups in the definitions of disease and providing that information out to patients and practitioners so they can improve the healthcare they provide their patients.
0: And what's the thing that you've seen at the conference so far? Um that's most excited you about the research that's going on? Have you seen any?
6: I think or? what I'm most excited about is how it really has moved beyond just the do we have a problem, what is it, to a large group of individuals, many of them far younger than me, who are working on strategies to how to incorporate it into their practice and patients uh, here and citizen members. Uh, also being empowered to figure out how they can work with their health care providers to get the best care for them while also reducing uh, the harms of overdiagnosis. It really has come a long way. I think in the past five years. The initial meeting in uh, uh, at Dartmouth five years ago was small. It really was about a small group of people kind of arguing that, yes, overdiagnosis is true. spinning our wheels a little bit to kind of say, what is it? How do you define it? To where we're at today—an international meeting with probably four to five hundred uh, people here. With um, it's clearly been incorporated into clinical practice guidelines, the health policy decisions, and actionable research—not uh, research, only in defining the disease, but how to move forward to that next step. Of dissemination and implementation. And I think that's really the key is linking research to clinical practice and policy. And I hope that's where Research Day is going to kind of take us, bringing together individuals with a multidisciplinary approach. You discussed this earlier about how. One person really can't do it all in this field. It really requires a wide range of individuals, from content experts, to policy people, to implementation scientists, uh, to GPs, et cetera, um, to bring that all together. And We hope we're going to do that, grounded in scientific theory, while incorporating patient values and the realities, really, of uh, practice and policies across the world.
0: That's all from the 2016 Conference on Preventing Overdiagnosis. Thanks for listening and to our partners and organisers, the University of Oxford, Dartmouth College, Bond University, and Consumer Reports for organising such an interesting programme. More information, including details of next year's conference in Canada, can be found on preventingoverdiagnosis.net. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. I'm Helen MacDonald. Thanks for listening and bye from Barcelona.